Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode nine in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Obeying and Spreading the Gospel where we'll discuss 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? 2 Thessalonians 3 has a lot of interesting, you know, even fascinating verses. Each verse seems to have some important insights, and we're going to talk about um, the link between prayer and mission, how we can pray for others, uh, the need for rapidity in the spread of the gospel, but at the same time a desire for healthy churches, good discipleship, good leadership development, how we can uh, kind of balance those uh, various aspects. This Thessalonian church was uh, being strongly persecuted and Paul wanted to get them ready and prepared uh, for them to run the race of faith in the midst of, of strong persecution. And, and then a main issue that he found there, and I think it's tied to their faulty eschatology, uh, was of idleness of brothers that it seems had quit their jobs and had quit life waiting for the second coming of Christ. Uh, they were urgent and ready, and they were negligent. They were not providing for their own families. They were, uh, Paul will say, not busy. They were busy bodies. They, they were just kind of gadding about when they should have been working. And this incredibly important principle, if any man will not work, then neither shall he eat. And so we're going to talk about mercy ministry and the need for labor. And then there'll be other aspects in terms of obedience to God's word, apostolic teaching, things like that. So we have a lot to learn today. Well, before we dig into our verse-by-verse questions, I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with the toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. 
It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In verse 1, Paul asks the Thessalonians to pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Why is it vital for the gospel to spread rapidly, and what does it mean for the gospel message to be held in honor? Well, there's a lot of deep theology in this first verse in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Um, he's asking for prayer from the Thessalonians. Okay, Brother Paul, what should we pray for? Pray for us. Okay, how should we pray for, for you, Paul? that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Now, wait a minute. That really isn't doesn't have to do with you, Paul. It has to do with your hearers, right? Mm. Pretty much, yeah, it has to do with our hearers. So pray for our ministry to the lost, that God would sovereignly work in the hearts of people who are dead in their transgressions and sins, that they will quickly come to faith in Christ and honor God's word. Hmm. The way they honor God's word is by believing it and trusting. So it really is a prayer for lost people that Paul in his evangelistic ministry will encounter that Paul might see fruit. He might see conversions. He might see uh, people uh, repent and come to faith in Christ. So this teaches the absolute sovereignty of God over human hearts and yet links it in the mystery of prayer. Like some have said, prayer changes things. And one of the most mysterious aspects of prayer is how is that true? How does prayer change things? Mm. Prayer definitely changes us. Prayer makes us more heated up to the things of God, more passionate about that. That makes perfect sense. The more you pray for evangelism, the more evangelistic you'll become. All that makes sense. But that prayer would change other people who didn't even know you were praying for them, who you don't even know them, don't even know them by name, but God does. And that that results in a much more effective evangelistic ministry by someone else, now that's a mystery. Hmm. And it's quite remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable too because God's zeal to convert lost people is infinitely greater than ours. So we're, we're coming to the, the raging bright heat of the sun and bring our little match of concern that people be evangelized and all that. And <laughs> God is on it uh, very much, but he wants us praying for that. And so we need to see the sovereignty of God in evangelism and missions, the need we have to partner with people in their efforts to bring people to faith in Christ. So you can pray for other church members who have lost loved ones or lost neighbors and join with them in their struggle by praying to God for their evangelistic fruitfulness. You can pray for missionaries on the other side of the world that they would be fruitful. That's It's a very powerful thing and we ought to do it. But We've kind of skirted the question here. Why, why should we pray for God's word to spread rapidly and be honored? The be honored part is that the people would, would and it's very much tied to the Lord's prayer. May your kingdom, you know, it says our Father in heaven. What's the first thing? Mm -hmm. Hallowed be your name. May people honor and respect your name, O God. Again, God, be. I'm all into that. I want people to honor my name. What do you want me to do about it? But we believe in a sovereign God. He has the power to have people honor and respect his name. Well, here it's that they would honor and respect the word, which is the same as honoring and respecting his name because the gospel ultimately is to convert people to the name of God through faith in Christ, etc. So fundamentally, this is sovereignty of God's stuff in prayer. Why do we care that the word of God spreads rapidly? Well, Paul cared. So we'll just keep it simple. If Paul wants the word to spread rapidly, we should too. Mm. Now, I've been in a lot of discussions as a, as a missionary thinker, as a missionary myself, and, and as somebody that's interacting with, with mission agencies, on the, the kind of counterplay or counter, counterpart between the word spreading rapidly on the one hand 
and church planters doing good, solid, healthy work on the other. Some people are so eager to, to evangelize rapidly, to go as fast as they possibly can, because they're concerned with keeping up with the birth rate at one level and the death rate even more significantly at the other. People are dying every day without Christ and, and they wanna go as fast as they can to get the word of God there in time before people perish. In some sense, there's a, there's a sense of appropriate urgency here, right from the text. We want the word to spread rapidly. But I wonder with some if there might be a little bit of unbelief here, uh, as, as though God is doing everything he can to get the word there in time to that village but somebody chosen before the foundation of the world who has as yet unconverted slipped off into eternity just before the word got there. That's impossible, could never happen. So for some people, they think it's a matter of evangelistic and missionary zeal. We've got to run, 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 run as hard, 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 as fast, as fast as we can because of the death rate. Hmm. I feel like we need to be about the Lord's business, not wasting time, not wasting energy, but not be frantic through unbelief either. There's a balance here. Furthermore, we're told that healthy churches are essential to the Great Commission. We're, we're gonna be teaching people to obey everything that God has commanded, not some of his commands, but all of them. Mm -hmm. Paul settled down in some places for 18 months and more and carefully taught God's word to them. He was, he was zealous for both speed in gospel advance and depth and breadth in gospel teaching. Mm. So he said with the Corinthians, as an expert builder, I laid a foundation and now others are building on it. They better be careful how they build. Mm. They need to build with quality uh, workmanship, gold, silver, costly stones, and not with wood, hay, and straw. So he wants good quality workmanship. Furthermore, essential to that is the raising up of leaders within the congregation, elders. But you're not allowed to lay hands on a, on a recent convert. You can't make someone, uh, you know, an elder who, is, who has been a Christian just a very short time mm. because they'll fall into the trap of the devil, which is pride and arrogance. So that's gonna slow you down. So there's a balance here between doing good quality evangelism, discipleship and church, healthy church planting on the one hand and yearning for the word of God to spread as rapidly as possible on the other. We hold them together. Yeah. Do you think some of this might also be just Paul's thinking about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, right. and his uh, understanding that this gospel will be preached and then the end will come. So sure. even just a sense of, yeah. of hastening that day and looking forward to it with a sense of urgency, not yeah. necessarily speed for the sake of speed, but knowing yeah. what's at the end of that gospel going forth to all those elect. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus said, this gospel of the king will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Or again, as Peter said, we look forward to the day of God and what? Speed it's coming. Mm. So there's there are verses that teach speed. Also in the book of Acts, it spread the word, it said the word of God spread spread widely and, and grew in number. There's lots of these rapidity type statements in the book of Acts. So mm. all that to say, uh, I don't think we, we go all in the one direction and forsake the other, all in the other direction and forsake the one. They must be held together. Mm. Ironically, in the end, if you do health strong, consistent building of the church, it's going to, in that region, spread more rapidly than if you do a kind of a shabby, rapid, bringing people to an initial prayer, sinner's prayer, and then leaving them the next day with a pat on the back and going on to the next lost person and winning them. Mm. Uh, that kind of shabby workmanship will not stand the test. They won't still be Christians a year later, it seems. Yeah. You know, Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians that they had fallen away under persecution. So he cared whether the churches were still there a year later or five years later. So there's a balance here. Absolutely. 
Now, why is it necessary to pray for ongoing protection for missionaries and evangelists to be pre- protected mm-hmm. from wicked and evil men as Paul does in yeah. verse 2? Well, no one, I think, on earth had more satanically driven enemies uh, during his lifetime than the Apostle Paul. I've often thought about, you know, the, the satanic post office and the top 10 wanted the photos up there on the, on, they used to do, I don't know if they still do that anymore, the top 10, you know, most sought criminals. Um, but when I was growing up, there was a, those mug shots mm-hmm. of these individuals. I would say Paul's picture would be eight of the top 10 pictures. You know, <laughs> the number one through eight is Saul of Tarsus. Yeah. Let's get, the, the Apostle Paul is take him out. So they had, he had Jews fasting, they would not take another another meal until they had assassinated Paul. Mm. Paul had people that pursued him from town to town, starting riots. That's how much they hated him. And I think Satan's behind all that. So, uh, but here he doesn't mention Satan or demons. He just talks about wicked, evil men. And and then he says something very important, even theologically. Not everyone has faith. Um, an Arminian or free will point of view, an extreme Arminian or free will point of view, implies that every single person on earth has faith, but only some. Some people use it. Um, and so, you know, the fact is everybody's got the equipment they need. They of their own free will need to choose to pick up that, that capability and use it. Mm-hmm. But this text says exactly the opposite. Not everyone has faith. Faith is a gift from God. And when it comes to you, a moment ago, you didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And now you do. So it's a gift of God. So fundamentally, not everyone has faith. And as a result, these wicked, evil men were super dedicated to shut Paul down. Paul's answer here is pray for us. Pray that we may be protected. Yeah. How is verse 3 comforting to those who desire to spread the gospel in the face of opposition? Why is it important for us to be aware of the threats of Satan and God's Mm -hmm. power to protect us from it? Yeah, he says, uh, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. I actually think a better translation, though it's not as widely thought of, uh, but I think it is more accurate from the Greek of the Lord's prayer, the last um, request, deliver us from evil is the normal way and deliver us from evil. Um, but it's actually deliver us from the evil one. Mm. It's deliver, deliverance from Satan. And I think the same thing is uh, here. The um, He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So we've got wicked evil men in verse two and the evil one, Satan, mm. in verse three. So there's a, a collaboration here. And, and it's amazing because as Paul, uh, as uh, sorry, as Jesus said, greater is he that is in you that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, that is Satan. So the Lord is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he is going to strengthen you, which is amazing. So we get weakened as we get assaulted by satanic temptations. Uh, He won't let you grow so flickering and and weak that you eventually are extinguished. He's going to strengthen you in the inner man. Mm -hmm. And he's going to protect you with that, that hedge of protection that Satan was complaining about with Job. I can't get at him, Lord. You won't let me get at him. Move the hedge of protection, move the wall of fire around him. I want to get at him, Mm. but um, he's going to protect um, you. And and it's interesting because he says he will strengthen and protect uh, you from the evil one. He's talking about the Thessalonians there, Mm. but he's counting on that same protection for himself. Yeah, he goes on in verse four to say, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Mm-hmm. How would verse four have been an encouragement to the Thessalonians as they read this? Yeah, so he has confidence in God's work in them. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're genuine Christians. And the way we know that is you obey what we tell you to do. So that this issue of, of obedience is vital. Uh, as, as Jesus said plainly in the Great Commission, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to to what? 
to obey everything. And so fundamentally, uh, Paul then was seen as the messenger, uh, the apostle of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul told you to do something, you knew that wasn't just Paul telling you to do that. That was something Jesus was telling you, you to do. And he was saying, we're confident that the work of grace in you is genuine. We've seen you be, we've seen your life transformed. You turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a genuine work, a supernatural work of God's sovereign grace in your life. We're confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians, and he's going to keep working in you. And the proof of that is you're going to keep obeying us. <laughs> and he'll get back to that later. But as he said to Philippians, um, now, brothers, as you have always obeyed, Philippians, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. But it's all couched in the terms of obedience. The reason we know that you're born again is you obeyed us. When we told you that you needed to, to uh, be baptized, water baptized, you did. When we told you that you needed to do some things with your life, with idolatry, you did. When we told you stuff about your marriage, you obeyed. When we told you things about prayer, you obeyed. This is how we know that God's at work, is you're obeying. And we're confident that God's going to keep working in you and you're going to continue to do the things that we command. Now, before we began our conversation today, we were talking a little bit about verse 5 and mm -hmm. uh, Paul's desire that the Lord would direct the hearts of the Thessalonians. So I'd love to, to hear some of uh, your thoughts on this idea of the direction of our hearts. And yeah. ultimately, I think the question is, what does Paul want the direction of our hearts to be? Yeah. And how are these kind of virtues vital in our evangelism? Yeah, so just ba first of all, the, the idea that the heart has a direction, it's also taught very plainly in Psalm 119. A number of Psalms talk about, you know, as the psalmist prays, the whole Psalm, Psalm 119 is a combination of the word, you know, which is the law, the testimony, his statutes, his ordinances, the word, and prayer, because every almost every verse is a prayer. And so some of those um, verses in Psalm 119 talk about the direction of the heart um, to move me, to direct me. Direction has to do with like, you know, where we're moving, where we're going, where, you know, where we're facing. And, and we're driving in a certain direction, et cetera. And here again, this is the sovereignty of God over the human heart. The, the, the Lord has the power to direct your hearts somewhere, to move you in a certain direction, to make you willing to go. And so he has that power, just like he can take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, so he can continue to give you um, you know, sustained directions where you've been going or new directions where you haven't been going, but he has the power to direct you. Now, into what in this verse? Hmm. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness or perseverance of Christ. Now, the first is the usual problem with the little word of. Is it the love that characterizes God or is it the love that God gives? It's one or the other. Well, frequently with these, I don't like to choose, like when it says in 2 Corinthians 5 about evangelism, the love of Christ compels us, for we know that one died for all, and all died, and therefore we should evangelize, etc. Love of Christ, is that our love for Christ, or is it Christ's love for us? Who knows? So here, may uh, the Lord direct your hearts into the fact that God loves you, or the love that characterizes God because God is love. Wes, could you choose between those two? I no, can't. Give me both. Give them, <laughs> let's <laughs> give just me, give take me both. them both. <laughs> yeah. may, may the Lord direct your hearts 
into God's love, that ocean, mm. uh, the, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. May he give you a sense of the immensity of God's love for you. And then having done that, may you then be increasingly characterized by love yourself. Yeah. How does that sound? May it's God good. direct you in that direction. <laughs> and then Christ's steadfastness is the fact that he, well, here's an example. He set his face to go up to Jerusalem and nothing could deter him. Mm. And his disciples were amazed. They knew that people in there wanted to kill him. They knew it, and he said it, he predicted it. And yet he was steadfast to do the will of his father. Uh, in John's gospel, after he had prayed in Gethsemane, he went out and met the murderous, uh, you know, arresting band armed with swords and clubs sent to arrest him and, and mistreat him. He went right out to obey his father. There's a steadfastness or perseverance in Christ. May God direct your hearts in that direction. Mm, what an encouragement, uh, as we said, as, as we seek to share the gospel and yeah. face opposition to be reminded of God's love, to be stirred in our love for Him, yeah. and then also to be reminded of what Christ has endured. It's an yeah. incredible picture there in verse So, five. by the way, verses one through five, these are super saturated in prayer. It's all what the Lord can do. May God direct you, may protect you, may pray for us. You know, this is, these, for, these five verses are great for a prayer time. Just take these five verses and just pray these for others, pray these for yourself, pray these for missionaries, you know. These five verses are a great prayer time. In verses 6 through 15, Paul, on the heels of this, turns to a warning. And it's a warning against idleness. Why is idleness, which Paul addresses here, such a problem in the life of the church? Well, in this particular case, I think these were people that were idle because of faulty eschatology. They thought the day of the Lord had already come or was coming in imminently, and there was no need, therefore, I mean, imagine there are farmers, and there's no need to get out there and, and uh, sow, uh, sow seed or plow. Well, what will you do if the Lord doesn't come back, you know, in this harvest season? You're going to starve. Mm -hmm. And so you need to work hard if you're going to eat something. If, if somebody will not work, they will not eat. Some of it will be just if you're a farmer, it's just a fact. You won't have anything to eat. But more in general, let's say if you're a tradesman, a carpenter, let's say, or a potter, if you will not work, you won't have any money. Then you'll be dependent on others. You'll be begging. And that's just, that's just not Christian. You need to go out there and work hard with your own hands. You need to, you need to, and he said that in, in chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, chapter four, verse 11 and 12. You need to work hard with your own hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you won't be dependent on other people. Uh, so no, don't count on the church to bail you out. That's not, that's not right. Just like with the widows, there are certain widows that made the list and would be cared for and others wouldn't. So the church cannot support you, food, clothing, and shelter. Those are big needs. The way God provided that for you is with your own breadwinning mind and body. So go out there and win some bread and work hard. That's what he's saying here. So there's this idleness here and some laziness. And just in general, Christianity is an energetic religion. It energizes you to go do good works for the glory of God. And some of those will be very practical to meet your own needs and not be the book of Proverbs sluggard who is laying on his bed all day long or makes excuses saying there's a lion out in the street or his property's getting run down and it's overgrown with weeds and thorns and nettles. And, you, and it's an embarrassment and an eyesore to everyone in the neighborhood because you're a sluggard. You're lazy. No, idleness does not line up with Christianity. Paul addresses this problem, really, it seems, in six steps. First, mm -hmm. how could what Paul told the Thessalonians about themselves in verses 4 through 5 
Hmm. relate to the idleness issues of verses 6 through 15. Yeah, so he's going to give them an energetic heart directed to God's love and to Christ's perseverance. And that's not a lazy life. That's going to be go do the good things that you're supposed to do. You're going to understand uh, how, you know, yeah, as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage right up to the time Noah entered the ark. So what does that mean? You're going to be buying and selling. You're going to be plowing and, and sowing and reaping. You're going to be working, 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 working until Jesus returns. Hmm. You should just know that. And so those verse four and five lead you into an energetic yeah. life. So secondly, what does Paul command the non-idle Thessalonian mm -hmm. Christians to do in reference to those who are idle? Keep six? away from them. Yeah. Don't hang out with them. He says uh, in, in verse 14, do not associate with him in order that he may uh, feel ashamed. So I guess we'll talk to that about mm -hmm. that in a minute. But but yeah, just this is this is like church discipline. With such a man, do not mm -hmm. even eat. If you know, and Paul says that in First Corinthians five. If if somebody claims to be a brother and yet is sexually immoral, don't even eat with him. Don't hang out with him. Don't let him feel okay with being lazy. So stay away from him. In verses seven through nine, then how does Paul present his own example as a role model for them to follow, mm -hmm. and how is that power of example so vital when it comes to this? particular issue. Yeah, I don't think anybody ever worked harder in the gospel than the Apostle Paul. I, I think in church history, I've never s studied anyone who suffered as much and worked as hard. And I've noted before, I think what I call the three-legged stool to Paul's ministry in Corinth, and perhaps you can extrapolate that to other places. The three-legged stool was during the day, he would be in the marketplace reasoning with, um, with lost people. All right. That also might be during the day he might be selling tents um, doing so. He's in the marketplace, perhaps selling his goods that he made with his own hands. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's also evangelizing. In the evening hours, the early evening hours, he's teaching the church. Like in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, he would gather with disciples and teach them doctrine. And then after everyone left, then he would get to work. And what would he do? With his own hands, he would make tents. And until when would he do that? Mm -hmm. Wee hours of the night. And he actually mentions hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger in Corinthians. Sleepless nights, I think sometimes it's wrestling in prayer over some, some people that were struggling with sin, but I also wonder if he might have been fulfilling some tent orders. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I need to have this by Tuesday. It's like, okay, and he's there all Monday night on into early Tuesday morning finishing the order. And he said, and he says this very plainly to the elders at Ephesus, you saw what I did there in Acts 20. Mm. We, we didn't covet anyone's silver or gold. We worked hard with our own hands so that we could make ourselves an example and share with those who could not work for themselves um, because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. So this is a regular pattern in Paul's life. Hard, hard work, work of evangelism, work of teaching and work of tent making uh, to support. Um, so he said, we weren't idle, mm -hmm. we worked hard and we didn't take anyone's food without paying for it. And we worked, what does he say? Night and day, mm -hmm. laboring and toiling so that we wouldn't be a burden to anybody. Yeah. And he said, now look, we didn't have to do this. And he makes right. this point. People who labor in the gospel should be paid for it. Hmm. He makes that plain in Corinthians. And he says it here too. We, it's not, we didn't have a right, but we chose not to, not to accept that right so that we could make an example for you guys. Yeah, you think of how powerful example is really just in our Christian walk generally that yeah. we would be able to, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We would yeah. ha have 
a pattern of life that exemplifies what we're calling others to, not something that's contradictory and, and it, yeah. in that undercutting the very thing that we're calling others to Absolutely. do. Yep. So in verse 10, Paul speaks of this command or this instruction that uh, they gave when they were mm-hmm. with them. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Yeah. How is obedience to Paul's teaching a strong remedy to yeah. idleness? Yeah, and this is an issue. There are people that beg all over the world, and beggars come, and you don't know their situation. Someone wrote a book recently, or a number of years ago, um, uh, uh, when helping hurts, and some of it could be issues of addiction, issues of alcohol addiction or drug addiction. Um, But in some cases, it's just an addiction to idleness, an addiction to laziness, where people are clearly able-bodied, I mean, they're younger, much younger than I am. Um, their bodies are look to be strong, and they're standing there on the street corners begging. I remember when I was in Pakistan uh, overseas, uh, there were beggars that would come up, and they, I remember uh, they would always point to their mouths and their stomachs like they were literally hungry right there and then. So we learned to go buy some flat, fresh, warm, delicious non bread, that kind of round, and I mm-hmm. thought it was great bread. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And we'd buy like seven, eight, ten of those, and they'd stack up like coins in a bag. And when a beggar would come, we would pull out one of those and hand it to him or her. And one or two of those beggars immediately threw the bread on the ground and stepped on it and walked away. They didn't want bread, they wanted mm-hmm. money. But a woman, I'll never forget a woman with a little child that she had a baby on her back took it and ate it immediately in our presence. As soon as she got it, she ate it. We gave her the whole bag at that point because there's genuine need out there. So I guess what I would say is this is in the church community and we're dealing with a category and if then, if any man will not work, not cannot work, but will not work, he should not eat. So beggars that cannot work should be cared for. Mm. But individuals who choose not to work, they shouldn't be allowed to eat. Yeah, it seems like just an application of wisdom here saying, yep. Lord, help us, help us see uh, genuine needs, but then also help us to think well about how we ought to uh, be actively working. Yeah. Verses 11 through 13, mm-hmm. uh, Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. We mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier. Mm-hmm. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not weary in doing good. Right. How does Paul here directly command the idol among them? And what's wrapped up in this command that he gives? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they need to they need to just settle down and live their lives. They need to take their good brains and their good bodies and stop complaining, stop whining, stop making excuses, either exegetical or eschatological, doctrinal excuse or anything. Mm-hmm. Just work until Jesus comes. You know, as Jesus said in another translation, occupy until I come. Be busy doing what I tell you to do until I come. Mm. Until then, don't anticipate my coming and stop working. Don't do that. Mm. Uh, so keep working. And so he's he's urging that they not be busy bodies. So that'd be an individual that gads about from house to house doing a lot of yapping, a lot of talking, but not any working. Mm. Um, and distracting people who are trying to earn a day's living. It's like, would you kind of leave? I need to finish this table and chair set by the end of the week and you're bothering me. So come on, move on. So we urge people, such people, these busybodies, Mm. we command them to settle down into their trade and work hard. So that's the command. And you know, for you brothers that hopefully are not idle, 
just keep doing the right thing. <laughs> don't get tired of doing <laughs> the right thing. Weary, don't yeah. get keep weary. Don't get weary. All right, the final uh, final charge here in in verses fourteen through fifteen is a command from Paul in reference to those who may stubbornly disobey his instruction. Uh, what's his goal in this? You alluded to verse 14 earlier, but in 14 and 15, what's his goal here yeah. as he gives this command? Well, this just feels to me like church discipline. It feels like he's dealing with a sinful category of people in the church, and he wants them to be disciplined. The purpose of discipline is to train them. It's a subset of discipleship so that they would learn to hate sin and to do the right thing. And so the idea here is, you know, and, and if you look at uh, public reading out of your sin pattern, excommunication, tell it to the church, vote him out of the church membership. This is all public shame. There's no physical side to it at all. There's nothing physical in the New Testament about church discipline, nothing physical at all. You don't hurt them, burn them at the stake, rack them or any of the weird things that the Spanish Inquisition did to heretics or whatever. We don't do any of that. What you do have, the stinger, is public shame that your sin is read out in front of the church and people are aware of what you've done. You committed adultery or you are a lazy sluggard who's not providing for his family. And here he's saying, I want this man to feel ashamed. So if anyone says shame should be no part of the Christian life, it's like, well, that's just not true. Shame is a powerful motivator. He needs to feel ashamed mm -hmm. and repent yeah. and start working. Go out and plant, his, plant the back 40. Work hard as a farmer. If he's a potter, make some pots and sell them. That kind of thing. So stop, stop, you know, depending on the labors of others and trying to take food without paying for it and all that. You ought to feel ashamed for that. There's a sense you, you see Paul looking at this fully grown 30-year-old man who's doing this, saying, you ought to be ashamed. You've got a wife and kids at home. Now get home and support them and take care of them. You know, it's like, all right, sorry, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's a shaming factor here. Yet he says, don't go too far. Don't look on him as a wicked, evil enemy, you know, but you're warning him as a brother. You yeah. want him to repent and come around. Yeah. So we've come now to the end of Second Thessalonians, Paul's benediction here. In verses 16 and 18, what does Paul include in this benediction for the Thessalonians? Mm -hmm. And how could all the churches of all time really benefit from these blessings. Well, here he calls him the Lord of peace. Um, mm. And he says, may he give you peace. And I believe that there is the status of peace and there's the sensation of peace. You know, there is objective peace and subjective peace. And both of them are part of the Christian life, though one's much more important than the other. Objective peace means God is not at war with you. God does not see you as an enemy. If he doesn't see you as an enemy, he has adopted you as a son or daughter. It's one or the other. You're either his enemy or he's adopted you. And therefore, if he has adopted you, he has covered you with peace in a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's at peace with us, and we are at peace with him in terms of our status. But then there's the feeling or sensation of peacefulness. Like Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's peacefulness from God. Now, God is the God of peace. He is tranquil within himself. He's never churned up within himself. He's never at strife within himself. He's peaceful. He's a peaceful being. He is the God of peace. 
And he has the power to give that peace to us. He's praying this in the benediction. May the God who is characterized by peace, who's always at peace, who's never ruffled or, or fluttered or frustrated or, or irritable or out of sorts ever, he's at peace all the time. May that God give you peace. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 26. He says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you. The Hebrew there is shalom, shalom, which is peace, peace. That's doubled for emphasis. May he keep you in perfect peace. So here he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love the end of verse 16 as well. And then 18 also, the mm -hmm. Lord be with you all. And then yeah. verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That idea yeah. that he is with us. You think of the source of peace. Yeah. It's not some abstract thing. It's the presence of God, his, sure. his presence with us as we carry out what he's called us to. Yeah, here's the thing. I, I, I never tire of thinking about Jesus asleep in the boat during the storm <laughs> and the stilling of the storm. What the disciples should have done is looked at him asleep and been peaceful and then awakened him to still the storm. So that's us praying about circumstances. You know, the boat really is quite full of water. Bailing isn't working anymore. Uh, it's a tremendous squall here, and we're going to go down, I would guess, within three or four minutes. It's time for something to change, and the Lord's the only one who can do it. But we trust him. We know we're not gonna drown here. We know he's he knows what he's doing. So Peter, or Thaddeus, why don't you wake him up, you know, and say, Lord, it's time for you to still the storm. That would have been awesome. Now they're not going to do that. Because it's like, where is your faith? Yeah, they're screaming. But um, that would be, I think, the best way to handle mm. the, the storm situation, to know that God is in charge. He's with us. He, we're not going to drown. He has the power. We trust him. Andy, what does verse 17 teach us about Paul and his ministry? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this chapter and, and this second letter to the Thessalonians? So verse 17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Well, he said that because um, earlier in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, he says, don't become easily alarmed or unsettled by some prophecy report or letter supposedly having come from us. So there were some spurious letters out there, maybe some counterfeit things. Mm -hmm. So Paul says, this is my mark. This is how I write. I write this way in all of my letters. Now, he didn't actually physically write most of his letters. Like Tertius wrote the book of Romans, all right? But he was just a secretary. Paul dictated it. But at the end, he would grab the pen, take it on, you know, honorably from Tertius, uh, and he would make his mark, and he would make, he would sign it. Now, it's interesting that we will never be able to see that. The autographs, the original copies have all been destroyed in the providence of God, but we have this, this record. So this shows some things that we as later generation readers of the epistles cannot do. We cannot see Paul's mark. It will never be made again. We'll never see it again. So this is a clear command given to the first century, first readers of the letter that you and I cannot obey. It's just interesting. And Paul would sign uh, with a certain mark so that people could know the genuineness. Now, how do we know it? Well, we know genuineness because of the rules of the canon. The fact that in the sweet sovereign providence of God, these 27 books of the New Testament were identified and collated and copied and they all harmonized together. Uh, the New Testament hasn't changed at all. Um, in all of these centuries, we have a high level of confidence that this letter is from Paul. Hmm. Andy, any final thoughts for us as we close out our time in Second Thessalonians? Well, it's an, been an exciting studying these two books. I, I'm excited 
excited uh, to see what the Lord does with uh, the things we've discussed and and the work that he does in our hearts with First and Second Thessalonians. These are great themes. I love talking about eschatology and, and all of these practical aspects. So uh, may God use these two these podcasts and these two epistles to help each one of you. Well, this has been episode nine in our Thessalonians Bible study podcast. We want to thank you for joining us and encourage you to be looking out for what's next in our Two Journeys Bible Study podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.